gore hounds and splatter sickos to horror palooza the bear trap on your head of horror podcasts i as always am sir ian dangerous aka your uncle frank and you can find me on twitter at sir ian dangerous and on instagram at sir ian dangerous i know it's really imaginative welcome back to the show and welcome to episode three of season three of horror palooza if you're just finding this show now and this is your first time listening stop and go back to episode one and start from there you're coming in in the middle but i understand if that's too much work and you don't want to go through that hassle then i'll tell you what i'll tell you what's going on i'll give you a little recap right now this is a show where every october in celebration of the Halloween season, I watch 31 horror movies, one for every day of October, and then I come back here, right here, and tell you all about them. If they're good, if they're amazing, or if they suck like Dracula at an all-virgin sleepover party. I'll tell you what I think about them, if you should watch them, if you should check them out, and if so, in what context. Because there's different, there's all different kinds of horror movies out there. There's horror movies you want to watch at a party with friends, and there's horror movies that you want to watch alone while crying into a vat of ice cream. I understand that. So I'm going to tell you if it's good, what, what kind of situation they're good for. However, here's the thing. Yes, I'm doing a marathon, but... I can't just watch any horror movies. Oh, no, no, no. I have some rules I have to follow when I'm making my selections. And I should add, I usually make my selections the night of. Very little planning goes into what I watch in order to keep things surprising and also to keep me from going insane. Well, more insane. You know what I mean? So what are those rules, you may ask, new person and or person who has listened before and has forgotten? Well, the rules are I can watch nothing that I've watched in the previous five years. I have to watch at least three movies that are in another language besides English. I have to watch at least one film from every decade from the pre-50s on, meaning that the before 1950, like the 40s and before counts as a decade, and then the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens, all of those, I have to watch at least one movie from those. Uh, multiple films from the same franchise do count as one, so I can't watch three Friday the 13th films and say that they're all three films. They only count as one film. And finally, of course, they have to be horror movies. Now, because it's 2020, and nothing is easy in 2020, I actually doubled all those numbers for myself, meaning instead of five years, it's now 10 years. I can't watch anything I've seen in the last 10 years. Instead of three foreign language films, six this year I have to make myself watch, and I have to watch two films from every decade. That means, yes, I have to find two 90s horror films that are actually worth watching that I haven't seen in the last 10 years. So it's a bit of an uphill battle, and uh, it's been an interesting, interesting run so far. Uh, These are the movies I've watched up until this point, just to catch everybody up. I have watched Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter from 1974. I watched The Endless from 2017. I watched The Taking of Deborah Logan from 2014. I watched The Stuff from 1985. I watched Tigers Are Not Afraid from 2017. Cry of the Banshee from 1970. One BR from 2019. Dolls from 1987. Bride of Reanimator from 1989, The Lodge from 2019, An American Haunting from 2005, House of Frankenstein from 1944, Die Monster Die from 1965, and finally, Color Out of Space from 2019. It's been a very interesting year so far. So as of the start of this week, I needed 50s movies. I hadn't watched anything out of the 50s. I needed 90s movies. I needed foreign language movies. Look, I'm looking forward to telling you how I did, but but I'm also looking forward to something else. You see, last week we also started something special here on the show. Uh, I'm looking forward to sharing part two of that. It's an interview I did with Alok Mishra, who's producer of 1BR, one of the movies I watched this year. And if you missed my review of that, go back, check out episode one. Uh, I also talked to two of the cast members, Naomi Grossman and Clayton Hoff. That's coming up later on in the show after I talk about the movies I watched this week. And honestly, it's a hilarious interview. Just wait till you hear about the hot guy that stole their production truck. No, really, it's, it's a hell of a story. Wait for that. But 
Before I get going into the show proper, I do also have to thank my musical contributors to the show. The Tiki Creeps played that awesome song at the top, and 414 Beg did the sound effects. He's on iTunes. They're on both on iTunes, actually. You can get the Tiki Creeps at tikicreeps.com. You can find them. 414 Beg does some awesome music. It's on, he's on Instagram, and he also released a great album you can find on Spotify. It's called Violence. So go check out 414 Beg, the number 414-B-E-G on Spotify. Tiki Creeps are awesome too. So also, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice in case I decide to put out a random episode here and there. Hit that subscribe button so you know you get that notification. Leave a review and or rating. You know how this works. You hear from everybody these days. Share us with your friends, all that good stuff. We are also on the Orbital Jigsaw Network at orbitaljigsaw.com. And you know, it's a little self-plug as well. If you like pro wrestling, you can check out Busted Wide Open, which is another live show I do on Twitch where Nick Howell and I run down the news and hottest topics about WWE, AEW, NXT, New Japan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's at twitch.tv uh, forward slash Busted Wide Open and at BWO Podcast on Twitter. So enough of that. Enough of that. We got a lot of show to get to. We got an interview with the producer and cast of 1BR Part 2. We got seven movies from this week we got to get to. So let's jump on it and talk about movie number one from this week, which was day 15. And I watched Motel Hell from 1980. And you can find it on Amazon Prime right now, uh, directed by Kevin Connor. I guess needed some work. Now, this movie was originally... It was supposed to be a like pitch black, gross-out horror movie directed by Toby Hooper as a sort of follow-up or ramping up of his Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The, the, the bizarre script and utterly batshit disgusting scenes in this movie, uh, they, well, they didn't make it into the movie. They actually had a hard time getting made, and when the studio wanted the harder core stuff, like there was like bestiality and dismemberment in this, in this movie, when they took that out, Toby Hooper split and the script stayed dead until it was reconfigured as this black comedy that we ended up getting. And it was gifted to Kevin Conroy, who, as I said, he needed work. Well, he was a fantasy director in the 70s and uh, he he needed a gig. And so they gave him this movie. Given the fact that Motel Hell still has some really horrific shit in it, though, I can only imagine what we would have gotten if we'd gotten a just crazy late 70s, early 80s, Toby Hooper take on this movie. It would have been bananas, but it's still pretty horrific. And when I say horrific, I mean people buried up to their necks in the ground and force-fed to fatten them up. They've had their vocal cords cut to slip, uh, they, like to prevent them calling out for help, and then they, they're harvested by, the, by tractor to be made into various forms of meat products, which are sold at the titular Motel Hello only there's a burned out O, so it's, get it? So they're being sold by Rory Calhoun, who apparently was also pretty hard up for work at the time since he was about 25 years removed from being in How to Marry a Millionaire, uh, being Marilyn Monroe's boyfriend in River of No Return, et cetera, et cetera. He also had a part in like every Western ever, but he's here in that movie and he's actually fantastic. The crazy thing about Motel Hell is it's not that bad. I mean, let me be clear, it's a terrible movie, but there are lots of redeeming points. I mean, first off, as I was saying, Calhoun is an awesome central character, and he's obviously having some deal of fun here playing a straight-laced but murderous motel owner slash cannibal, and his sister is played by Nancy Parsons, and if you've ever seen the Porky's film, she was a Beulah Ballbricker in those movies. Not that those movies are exactly legends of cinema, but you know what I'm saying. In case you've seen those, that might give you an idea who she is. Frankly, she steals every scene she's in, and it's a crime. She doesn't get more screen time or things to do. So the visuals of the buried people, the ones I told you buried up to their necks, that's pretty disturbing, especially considering as one of them is John Ratzenberger, pre-being Cliff Clavin on Cheers. And frankly, the noises that they make with their slit throats are some of the worst most stomach-churning things I've heard in all my years of horror movie watching. and I, That's saying something. But most of all, and this is what the movie is known for, there is a climactic chainsaw duel where Calhoun dons a massive pig's head and starts fighting another guy in the meat rendering facility. It is as fucking insane and ridiculous as it sounds, and considering it wasn't even in the script before filming, 
It is a stroke of genius that this film needed to put it over the top from 80s curio to must-watch timepiece. And again, it is not a good movie. The character motivations of the supposedly innocent lead girl and the supposedly good guy cop slash rapist, he's really raping, you'll see what I mean. Uh, they, they range from incomprehensible to outright bullshit, and sometimes within the same scene. And there are some scenes that drag on for way too long that are there. They're unnecessary. There's a few subplots and characters that lead nowhere and are just a waste of time. They could have trimmed 20 minutes out of this film easily, and it would have become a lean, mean, chainsaw-swinging machine. And also, out of a lack of desire to do anything too gross... Director, the, the director uh, missed several possible moments where he could have pleased the gorehounds and the exploitation heads by adding a bit of splatter or a gross-out gag, but instead, he went for something more limp and flaccid in execution. And I'm looking in particular at the harvesting scene with the tractor. Uh, he could have really gone crazy there without too much effort, and he didn't. It's kind of a letdown. Now, while I appreciate that he was proud that he, quote, didn't show as much gore as he could have, apparently he doesn't fully comprehend what kind of movie he was making or what audience it's for. And this movie misses out on being an all-time classic of the genre because it goes soft on a few scenes and it lacks that big punch to send it over the edge into utter lunacy. Although, I don't know, a chainsaw duel is pretty freaking loony. And, and that being said, it is still a must-watch if you like weird 80s exploitation horror movies or if you're a fan of Chainsaw Duels, like I and any other discerning horror fan am, or if you're just you just like old cowboys acting like cannibals, that's a it's a niche market, but I'm, I'm sure it's there. But check it out if you like that kind of stuff. Uh, next up, day sixteen on Shutter, I found a movie called Monstrum, and it's a Korean movie directed by Hyo Jung Ho, and it, it takes it's a period film, and it's a how do I describe this? Because sometimes horror movies come in forms that you don't expect. And I found this, and it looked cool, and I, I almost never read descriptions before watching movies. So all I got from the picture was there was period armor, so I knew it was from like the eh, 1600s or something in Korea. There's a big monstery eye, and the skin around it is surrounded by, it's got boils and some unpleasant looking flesh, so that's all I really knew about what the movie was about. And I definitely couldn't have guessed that I was in the, for the Korean equivalent of a big-budget Hollywood monster movie, complete with stock characters, obvious dialogue, and even Korean pop stars and teen idols in main roles, and also a lot of really cool medieval martial arts combat. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Monstrum is bad. It's not. It's just not very good. I mean, you'll feel like you're watching a typical summer blockbuster, only it's pared down to the scale possible by the Korean film industry, which is, which is formidable, but it's not necessarily on the same level as like a James Cameron or Michael Bay, which this movie is desperately striving to emulate with these daring camera moves and stylized martial arts combat. But it does, okay, so the setting and the scenery is quite lovely, and the story of a monster-hunting disgraced soldier, his adopted daughter, his comic relief friend, and the plucky young soldier in love with said daughter, oh, and the emperor too, it's, it's one you've seen a million times. But I gotta say, the charisma of the actors here makes it worthwhile again. But uh, the monster. And this is a monster movie, first and foremost. While cool in concept, as a plague-ridden, eastern, like, lion-ogre hybrid thing, it's severely hampered by some wildly outdated special effects and some utterly embarrassing compositing. There are some scenes it looks like he was duct taped onto the film by a drunken editor. The black levels are completely different half the time. He doesn't even seem to interact with the ground and he, he looks strangely flattened and it's like the FX department had no idea how camera lenses work in terms of distance distortion. But... On the upside, he is incredibly fast and brutally vicious, so most of the time he's a blur anyway, and he's just shredding through lines of soldiers or tearing through stone walls and trees. He's a nearly unstoppable force of nature, and that's cool. But the movie makes the questionable decision to reveal him entirely in his first appearance. So at no point is there a mystery as to what he is or looks like though we do get some backstory revealed later in the film, so there's some mystery, we just didn't need it. But as I said, he is utterly devastating. And the effects of his rampages are where this movie crosses from action to horror. 
And I would have to make a strident argument for this being a horror film if it weren't for two things, the plague and the monster. It makes it a lot easier for me to argue this. The plague is a plot device. It's just kind of there. But the way they show its effects is cartoonishly over the top. And it's the kind of thing you don't see in big budget movies that want to grab a wide audience because it turns people off because it's so gross. And also, as I stated, the monster's path of destruction includes severed limbs, destroyed faces, piles of bloody bodies. He is not a PG-13 monster. He is fully rated R. And that's one of the things I dug about this movie is the way he utterly wrecks people. And he's not the only one. The main characters are utter tanks as well. They're, they mow through rows of bad guys like Legolas and Lord of the Rings on crack. They only take hits if the plot requires it. This is an action movie and it's a fun one the characters are all as basic as they come uh but as i said earlier they're all fun and the actors some of whom are venerable character actors some of whom like choi Wu shik you may have seen in train to busan or parasite uh, one in particular uh lee hyari who is a verifiable national pop icon they're all very good and they really fill the screen screen in terms of presence so it's very watchable the only major nitpick is the utter howler of an ending where you're, you'll either chuck a shoe at the screen or just smile and go along with it. It is such a cheeky conceit of a final beat that I, I had to admit I was impressed by its utter ridiculous audaciousness. Maybe, maybe they had another ending and it tested poorly, so they went, fine, fuck you, and gave us this one. I don't know. But while it would be easy to dismiss Monstrum as a by-the-book popcorn action horror movie, it's actually quite charming in its own mainstream baiting dumb action movie kind of way it's worth a watch if you like martial arts action mini kaiju-esque monsters and badasses being badass so check it out if you like those things but uh, don't check out don't torture a duckling if that's your bag because that's a very different movie and it's the movie i checked out on day 17 from 1972 it's available on amazon prime and shutter directed by lucio fulci now he is probably best known for his zombie films and his impact on cinema in terms of its gore quotient but he he also did these very quiet reflective films with personal meaning to him and, and which you can see his talent truly shining through in them and don't torture a duckling is one of those movies falling into a kind of horror adjacent category as a giallo an italian word which can loosely be translated to like a in colloquial english a pulp like we refer to crime or seedy underbelly of society films and books here in the states you know like pulp pulp fiction that kind of thing both words refer to books that contains certain types of stories, crime, horror, noir, etc. In the U.S., pulp referred to the quality of paper. In Italy, giallo or yellow referred to the color of the books, which all had yellow covers or spines. So that's where the term comes from. And Don't Torture a Duckling is barely a horror. It's a, it's a giallo, it's, but it's more of a crime thriller, a murder mystery dealing with the unpleasant underbelly of a small Italian town which is suddenly racked with child murders and the reactionary effects of those crimes. It deals with small town superstition, religious zealotry, black magic, guilt, sin, etc. And the only reason I could say it crosses into the territory of horror is the fact that it is gory as hell. Now, not often, mind you, that while there are quite a few deaths in the film, uh, they don't happen that often. But when they do, oh, man, there is a scene in this movie where a woman is beaten to death that is one of the most unpleasant and stomach-churning scenes I have ever, ever come across in a 70s film. It is truly brutal and unflinching and horrific. And another death in the film, actually, is, is equally as graphic, but it's almost comical in comparison to the gritty violence shown in that one scene. It's intense. But there's also a sheen of sexuality over the film, mostly coming from the absolutely drop-dead gorgeous Barbara Boucher, who was Miss Moneypenny in the original Casino Royale. Uh, she was also Miss Shermerhorn in Gangs of New York, though she's a long cry from that here. She is the definition of a femme fatale. She's coming on screen in her first scene. She's fully nude. She's seducing a schoolboy just for the thrill of it and possibly with these ulterior sinister motives. This film keeps you guessing about all of its cast right up until the end, though 
Anyone who's seen a movie like this before will probably guess the outcome fairly quickly, but that doesn't mean it's not an interesting ride getting there. Now, Fulci was at his best here as far as a director. The shots are beautifully composed, and while some of the scenes have a level of like 70s cheese or camp to them, there are several moments that are incredibly intense and complex. And the story can sometimes be hard to follow as there's an element of needing to really understand Italian and specifically small-town Southern Italian culture. But I found I was fine if I just paid attention. So you, you do have to pay attention to it, but it's, it, it is worth it. And overall, it's definitely worth a watch if you're a, a Fulci fan or if you're a fan of international cinema, as this movie has been hard to find until the last decade or so. Uh, it kind of fell through the cracks. And it's not what I would necessarily call a pure horror movie or a horror movie fit for the Halloween season, but I'm not mad I watched it at all, and it absolutely fits on this list. That being said, I needed to flip the script a little bit for the next one. So on day 18, I watched Brain Damage from 1988, written and directed by Frank Henenlotter. Oh, man. Uh, I knew I could trust him. If you hear the name Frank Henenlotter, you pretty much know what you're in for a cartoonishly bizarre and profane trip to the wild side of cinema and also a hilariously good time now brain damage is the definition of a midnight movie it's it's spurned on its release but it obtained a significant cult following long after like pretty much all of hen and lotter's other weirdo movies like basket case and frankenhooker Brain damage is full of gross-out moments, as you would expect, and, and there are some you have to believe it scenes. And it's also a pretty stark de- depiction of drug addiction and losing oneself to one's demons. But that aspect works as a foundation to the rest of the film, which plays everything straight, but is obviously winking at us the whole time. So that layer of seriousness really helps bring out all of the comedy and the fun. And this movie is a fucking blast. There's a brain-eating parasite with the voice of like a 40s crooner. Uh, Think Seth MacFarlane on some Mother's Little Helpers. He needs help to find brains to eat, so he enlists a young guy named Brian, which is an anagram of brain. (laughs) Get it? Uh, He enlists Brian to carry him around and help him feed, and he gets Brian's help by injecting a blue drug into Brian's brain, which appears to be like acid, meth, heroin, and Oxycontin all rolled up into one, and this makes giant, uh, Brian a giant malleable freak, but it also quickly ruins his life. But that's where the fun begins, because this movie has almost no limits in terms of where it's willing to go, and I mean that. Three words. Blowjob scene. I, I, was, I was howling at several scenes in this movie, actually, and and very rarely was I bored or even impatient to get to the next moment of bloodshed or bizarre happenings or what have you. I am, I gotta say, I'm also always fascinated by Hen and Lauder's depiction of his New York. It's not, this movie's not just about the, the insanity. There's another layer here. His New York is this seedy, off-putting, trashy, dangerous, degenerate New York of the 80s before the big cleanup of Times Square. It's it's kind of a lost city now, what it was then. And his films capture an essence of that that is gone now, for better or for worse. And he had his characters in the same world, too. They're all in this same New York. There's There's a cameo from Dwayne Bradley, who's the main character of Basket Case in this film, uh, he's still wandering the streets carrying his deformed twin Belial in a basket. That's a Henlotter movie for you. And also, speaking of New York, there's, a, the, there's the voice of the parasite in Brain Damage. It's also a bit of New York texture. He's voiced by John Zachary, who was one of the original TV horror hosts in the 40s and 50s in New York and Philadelphia. And his voice is utterly iconic. And it makes a hilarious counterpoint to how this little critter actually looks. Now, Henlotter once said that he didn't like to call his movies horror movies per se, but that he believed they fell more under the umbrella of exploitation films because those are the films he liked to see at the CD movie theaters in New York. Well, I'm here to say this is a goddamn horror film, whether it's the horror of dealing with addiction or watching someone you love fall into a pattern of drug use or from the utterly bonkers and over-the-top gore and splatter effects or just the image of a bizarre purple turd-shaped leech monster with kind little eyes opening up its maw to reveal a host of teeth and tentacles and one drug-transmitting blue-gel-secreting stinger. Now, I, I can't recommend this movie highly enough. 
If you like goony, low-budget, hilarious, disgusting, bloody films, I, I really don't have much more to say than that. It is what it is, and it's a damn riot, and it's definitely one to freak out your square friends with. So check out Brain Damage. Uh, and the next day, I went for something classic. Day 19, I watched The Invisible Man from 1938. Uh, it is, I, I had to actually go into my, my Blu-ray collection to find this, but you can rent it on Amazon. Directed by the James Whale. Uh, following the success of Frankenstein and the Dark Old House, James Whale actually had the opportunity to create another one of Universal's classic monsters, and that was The Invisible Man, and he did a great job here. And to my chagrin, I had never seen this movie, and I decided to rectify that in the middle of the damn night when I just got a wild hair up my ass and decided to pull it out of that Universal Monster Blu-ray collection I have and pop it in, and I'm so mad I didn't watch it before now. Because it's not at all what you expect. You jump in halfway through the story, or at least compared to lesser versions like Hollow Man, and it gets us right into the thick of it right away with Claude Rains already covered in bandages, losing his mind from the effects of the drugs he used to turn himself invisible. And my God, Claude Rains, what a performance it is. Uh, it's, you know, one, one way I can actually put over how great it is is Mark Hamill actually posted recently on Twitter that he took a huge amount of his performance as the Joker in the Batman cartoons and video games. And, it's, and it is the best Joker, by the way. It's not, it's not an argument. It's just a statement of fact. Don't come at me. Uh, but he took his performance from, of the Joker from Reigns in this film. And if you watch this movie, in the scene where he full, first pulls off the bandages to terrify the policeman who's attempting to arrest him, it's uncannily similar. And this, this part is actually mostly voiceover. I mean, Claude Rains is acting, but he's just, you know, he's covered in bandages for 90% of this film. So you just have to get everything through his voice. So, and Rains did get famous from this in America. Uh, this was the movie that made him famous. And his long film career can be argued to have started here as a result of a performance in which his real face is only seen once at the very end, and he plays most of the film either covered in those rags or utterly invisible. That's amazing. And the actual invisibility effects, while they're obviously wildly dated, it, they're still really impressive for the time. There are some amazing gags they used to pull off the effect, and the effort they went to achieve it is obvious. And there's a... Yes, there's a bit of campiness to the film now and a, a theatricality that's the case with all the movies of the time, but frankly, the unnerving nature of a man who has lost his moral compass and also the ability, has, he has the ability to be unseen and all the unsavory things that he can do with that power. The chilling nature of that still translates. It, it actually makes me want to see the latest version of The Invisible Man, so maybe that will show up in the marathon later this year. I'll see if I can sneak that in, but... Great movie. Check it out. Absolutely deserves to be a classic. And day 20, I watched La Llorona from 2020. Uh, I found it on Shudder. Now, keep in mind, not Curse of La Llorona. This is just La Llorona, directed by Jairo Bustamante. And this is, unlike that film, uh, La Llorona, the 2021, is an extremely slow-burning exploration of justice and guilt. This movie is... It's less a ghost story or a haunted house movie or a monster movie, and it's more of a meditation piece on a family which has been tainted literally by the sins of the father, or in this case, the grandfather. Now, again, I have to reiterate this. Just drive this home. Do not mistake this movie for the completely different and utterly garbage curse of La Llorona. This movie is a prestige reimagining of the Latin American boogeyman or boogie woman in this case. Now, while Mexico is arguably... Biggest global outsourcer of like La Llorona tales and mythology and whatnot. This movie is actually Guatemalan, which is just across the border. And instead of a spirit who has killed her own children and covets those of others, Llorona in this movie is now more of an avenging angel of the native inhabitants. And the tension between the strict military government and the lives of the natives is front and center in this film. But the trappings of the legend are still there. The white gowns, the water associations, the wailing and weeping sounds. But the meaning is vastly different. But this movie is less about how it interprets the legend and more about how it deals with the family that is central to the plot. Now, I recently read a quote somewhere which said that horror is best 
when it's the actual horror is irrelevant to the plot. And while that is an arguable point, it's certainly the case here. The real story isn't about the haunting. The real story is about a disgraced military general and a former dictator found guilty of war crimes against the native populace and how his wife, daughter, and granddaughter react to being confined with him in his huge old mansion while hordes of protesters line the streets outside, trapping them inside. And then how in the midst of all of that, a new maid shows up dressed in white and loving water, and she digs the young daughter of the family. You kind of get where things are going. Now, while there ends up being some plot threads that go nowhere in this movie, I actually would argue that they all are there to set up an atmosphere and a greater picture of the family, and many scenes are just shown to add color and texture. And the way that they are shown is certainly very bold. Bustamante has no fear of lingering on a shot or a scene. He likes to set his camera down, and just let things play out within his frame. And while, yes, sometimes that makes the pace of this movie drag, it certainly is always visually inviting and stimulating. Ultimately, this movie never really picks up its pace, but it does earn its ending, which smacks of the twist in American Haunting just a little bit, and I know I know what you're thinking. Oh, God, no. But it, it really is a very similar conceit in how the ending goes down. Only here, you feel like it's more earned. And it sees through a character arc that ends up being surprising and devastating. The main character is not who you thought it was at the beginning, the person you're supposed to be focusing on. But on reflection, it always was. And then you, you have a new way of looking at the film. And the other thing about this movie that's fantastic, this movie is historically relevant. It has, it has some really deep meanings for the people of Guatemala and obviously for the director as well. Uh, the grandfather in this movie is a direct analog for Efrain Rios Mont, who was the military director of Guatemala in the early 80s, about the same time as the war crime supposedly occurred in this film. So not only is he visually nearly identical to the character in this movie, but the crimes he was guilty of were almost exactly the same. Rape, torture, destruction of the native Mayan people under the assumption that they were all in league with the powerful anti-regime guerrilla groups. That was the order of the day. Destroy them all, scorched earth, and it's, it's as it's depicted in this movie. And as in this movie, uh, the opinion on the dictator in question is divided to some extent. You know, he's, he's convicted, but then the trial is thrown out. At the time, President Reagan actually referred to Mont as a man of great personal integrity, even though his reign was censured internationally. So, again, it's all, it's all over the place in terms of how people dealt with him. And justice, however, eventually did come to him, as it does to the aging general in this film, though obviously in vastly different ways. And even here, justice comes in a way you don't expect. And it's from a place you didn't expect it would given everything else in the film. Although once it happens, you understand how it came to be as though you've been led into deep water slowly and only once it's up to your neck do you understand what you've been through. And it's certainly a thought-provoking movie. It's not, it's not fun by any stretch, but it stays with you after it's done. And it speaks to a deep pain in the Guatemalan psyche that they are obviously still trying to process. So I like the movie a lot. It was a beautiful movie. Uh, but it's definitely quiet, slow-paced, little on the mellow side. So don't watch it if you're sleepy. But a movie that you can watch anytime, and it will keep you wide awake. On day 21, I watched Evil Ed from 1995 on Amazon Prime, directed by Anders Jacobson. And once again, I'm spinning from something serious and heavy to something, hmm, well, much different. I decided to go with this loony goopy Swedish horror comedy that is just far too under the radar for how absolutely freaking insane and and good it is. It, just when you thought they didn't make splatter horror like this in the mid-90s, Evil Ed comes along and gives you a big old wet sloppy grin alongside with a bunch of severed limbs, buckets of blood, all makes you feel better. It's a direct descendant of Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, Body Melt. Evil Ed is, is like a loving homage to all those films and every video nasty and splatter horror ever made. So if you love horribly acted, campy, gory, perverse, profane, cheesy, mindless, cheap-looking trash cinema, you have found a golden ticket. Now, it would make a good double feature with any of those films I just mentioned, or even brain damage, actually, because it's a very similar kind of mentality. 
Uh, it's about a video editor who is assigned to a series of films that contain nothing but perverse, perverse sex and horrible violence. And much like the former editor, it drives him into a homicidal rage. Now, there's really no need to pay attention to the plot beyond that. Trust me, the movie doesn't really care about it either. It's too busy doing send-ups of 80s horror, including showing dozens of classic movie posters, sending up Gremlins, Evil Dead 2. It has one major shout-out to Night of the Living Dead that you could frankly see coming a mile away, but it's still fun when it happens. And it's doing all of that rather than pay any attention to story development or logic. And frankly, it's just best if you just sit back, turn off your brain, and laugh. And while there are some pacing issues, overall the movie keeps the good stuff coming, whether it's laughs or splattery splooshes of the red stuff. And it's actually an advantage that it's Swedish because, frankly, the accents just make everything funnier. And the horrible dubbing actually adds another layer of ridiculousness to the whole proceedings. The tagline for the film was, it's a no-brainer. And while I could make a joke about how dumb this movie is, it's actually a smart movie disguised as a dumb movie disguised as a smart movie disguised as a dumb movie ultimately that means it knows exactly what the hell it is and it doesn't give a fuck and there are a couple of scenes in particular including the final monologue which clue you into that fact that that this movie is just here to have fun and doesn't give a rat's ass what you think but that's the thing there is this undertone of this bratty punk energy anarchy which obviously stems from the filmmakers living under the Swedish State Bureau of Censorship their entire lives. And it was dissolved in 96, right around the time this movie was released. If you think Britain in the 80s and its video nasty censorship was brutal, Sweden was worse. And Jacobson and crew obviously had a lot of pent-up fuck-you energy that they had to get out with this movie. And it's that energy that makes this film so much fun. And like a lot of the other horror directors of the time who had low-budget films where they just wanted to let loose and go wild, Evil Ed is an expression of unleashed, gore-tastic, primal urges, and it's a fun fucking movie to, to boot, so check it out. Another fun one to watch if you want a hoot, because it's a hoot. But that is it. That was number seven. Those are the movies for week number three. So, yeah, all right, feeling pretty good, sitting a little prettier on my quota now. I'm still missing one movie each from the 60s, 90s, from the aughts. I, I, I filled some of that. Uh, I still need two from the 50s. The damn 50s. I still need two foreign language films left because uh, I've got four of them already. I've only got 10 slots left for a movie, so I'm going to squeeze those in. This is going to come down to the wire. But luckily, instead of dwelling on that, I actually have something else in store for you right now. I have part two of my interview with one of the producers and two of the stars of 1BR, of producer Alok Mishra and stars Naomi Grossman and Clayton Hoff. If you have not checked out part one of this interview, go back and listen to last week's episode. And if you haven't seen 1BR, go do it now. It's on Netflix. It's easy to find. Watch it, one, because it's actually pretty great, and two, because, spoiler alerts, we're going to be doing a lot of talking about the movie in this interview, so don't let yourself get spoiled. We give away a lot of stuff. So, without further ado, here's part two of that Horror Palooza interview. So, guys, I want to pick up where we left off. You mentioned fires, and I know that the Skirball fire was going on at the time that you guys were prepping and filming this movie. And for people who don't live in L.A. who are listening to this, there's the 405 freeway, which you may have heard of, is one of the major arteries of Los Angeles. And it goes, there's a, there's a range of mountains that goes east to west, kind of splitting the city between the west side and the valley. And to get to the valley from the west side or vice versa, you have to take the 405 through this winding mountain pass uh, called the Skirball Pass. And that was all on fire. It was an apocalyptic fire at the time you guys were filming this movie. And... Was that the fire you guys like you're talking about? What? How did that affect your guys' filming? Um, so uh, what happened was at our production office, uh, Allard Cantor and Jared Murray, who are also uh, David Marmer's managers of a company called Epicenter, and it's on the other side of the freeway, the 405, other side from the, the Getty Museum. And so what happened was that that fire was right there. And they were like, uh, we can't even, we can't, none of us can go to the office uh, because we don't even know if the office is there right now. Like, so where, like, where to, are your offices in the canyon? Are they like right up at so, 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 on the top? Or? No, on, on Sepulveda. Like on Sepulveda, on the, so the other side of like, so 
if if the top part to the left, if you're going north on the 405, is like where the um, the Getty is, opposite side of the freeway, where it's just on it's flat, it's on Sepulveda right there. Uh, just had some office space there, and so we were you know using one of their offices, and we they couldn't go into work, we couldn't go into work, no one could go into work because it was just like they don't they're like we're looking on Google Earth every like ten minutes to see if it's there, if any of the smoke clears, and we can see you know if, if the thing is still standing or if it's on fire because we cannot tell anything at this point. Uh, and the fire department wouldn't let, wouldn't let you get close to it, so we had to like switch all the uh, production stuff to my uh, my uh, my home, which I had uh, this whole hundred year old Crasson, which we shot quite a few scenes in the movie at actually. Um, at one point when we were doing reshoots actually in that house, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting away from the fire. So the fire at the end of the day we couldn't do. We had to we had to basically uh, go to the valley to show our actress, who was you know the person cast at the time, who didn't get to do the role, um, that there was no actual fire around there. Because there was no fires in the valley at that point. But I just showed this crazy lady, uh, not crazy, this, you know, whatever lady, this nice lady, um, that there were, on my phone, like, there are no fires anywhere close to me. High maintenance lady. High maintenance lady, we'll call that. Uh, And I don't think we're out of place. Um, Diva. Yeah, yeah, all those words apply. Um, But yeah, so yeah, we basically (laughs) did all this stuff, shifted the the office to my house, and what's really funny about it is we did a lot of shooting at the house. Um, the parts that you see, uh, the interrogation going on, uh, that's actually in my wine cellar, which we like, it was a, a bit, you don't have a lot of basements in Southern California, but we converted that into this like, you know, uh, uh, you know sort of, um, I won't say it's Scientology for, you know, the stuff they're doing to her as far as the uh, monitoring, let's say, but that's that scene was shot in my uh, basement. And then um, we were doing the reshoots, like, Everything that you see that's an interior of the apartment is actually a set, right? And we had this one set, and they would redress it every night into whatever the scene was. If it's Miss Stanhope's apartment, or if it's like you know Sarah's apartment, or if it's the classroom with the kids, all that stuff. And, and that entire set was destroyed after we shot. It was disassembled. What we did notice, though, was that the uh, the, the floor um, the floor on the um, in the kind of the torture room, if, if you will, uh, looked exactly at the floor of my office. So when we went to do the reshoots, they actually built that entire room, like a false like, wall and all the good stuff in my office and just cleared the whole thing out. And we got like more things we needed to pick up that we didn't get the first time when we were shooting, like more sort of like even different angles of her going through her like pain and stuff like that when different things are happening. And like, uh, you know, um, the whole scene with Lisa at the end we did some reshooting there too as well, but that was all done in my house. And the funny thing, here's a fun fact. We wanted to do a, a more practical effects for this. Right. And we had, you know, set it up to do that, but you know, we don't have a lot of time. Time is money. And it turned out for the, the part when the nail is going into her hand, they put the bladder on the wrong side. They didn't put it here. They put it here. Uh. So we went to do the nail. It just wouldn't explode out of the thing. Like it was supposed to. Cost us like three grand of VA, VA, VHX, I mean, whatever, VFX, if you, I can be honest, or whatever. But they took, they took that hand, that arm to the bathroom, and like they're trying to make it work, and the thing just fucking exploded, like <laughs> curtains and everything in the bathroom. And we didn't have time to clean it. And I had sent my poor wife away when we were shooting all this shit because we had a baby and stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, she came home, and we still had to clean it. It's like, all over the shower and like just blood everywhere. And she's like, fuck happened here and i'm like oh don't worry honey it'll come out with some warm water and she's like why didn't it already then <laughs> I'm like, I didn't have time. so anyway it's one of those fun things that happens uh when you're trying to make an independent film uh you have to use your own house and so forth right and well especially when an apocalyptic fire is burning down your offices which they didn't actually burn down though right thankfully still- thank- thankfully they didn't thankfully they, but, didn't. they were able to save all that stuff but there was a, a hot truck thief involved yes oh, I mean, Naomi, you want to tell this one? Because I think uh, you've gotten pretty good or no. I don't know if I know this one as well. I I will just say that there was... I'll just tell it if you, if you don't know it well enough. Um, so, okay. So, I don't know. On day eight, I get a text. And it's like, we're working 18-hour days. I'm not answering this text in the middle of the night. And the text is like, something really bad happened, but I think it's going to be okay. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that means when I wake up in the morning. And I'm like what has happened? Like, <laughs> they're like, okay. And like, you know, two 30 in the morning, this white Escalade pulled up 
and it doesn't have any plates on it. And these three guys get out, and we had three production trucks that are parked right next to our production office on Sepulveda in a place we think is fairly safe. But we, but we were smart, and we had a production PA spending the night in the middle truck, right? It's just up all night playing video games or doing whatever you do when you're just trying to be, not be bored or, or whatever, which in Netflix or something. And, and what happens is these guys get out of the truck and they break into the tr first truck and they are off and running with it like in eight minutes. And they don't break into any other trucks, thankfully, because, you know, I think that guy had a gun and who knows. I think he's been a bit of an adrenaline junkie any which way. And so um, essentially he gets in his own car and he follows the truck. And he's calling, he's on the phone with 911. And he's like, you know, talking to them and they're like, sir, you need to stand down. And he's like, I won't stand down. I won't stand down until you are getting behind that truck. You know, da, 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 da. like, and the cops are there. So he follows them from the 405 to the 10 to the 110. And right with the Felix sign is when everything goes down. And the Felix sign is a very iconic sign. You've probably seen it in movies and what have you. And uh, the helicopters basically shine their lights on this truck. And then three cop cars rush in. And this jackass tries to gun it, gets off the freeway, and there's like a car chase all around USC. It's actually televised, as is his capture, which actually is on the Blu-ray, if you want to purchase it. Uh, when we did our uh, uh, Q&A in Fantasia, we showed that footage and so forth. Um, but they, they pull this guy out of the truck. And by the way, you say what you want about the LAPD. They were so nice to this guy. I kind of wish they hadn't <laughs> been, but they were so nice to this guy. They pull this guy out. And he's fucking handsome as fuck. Like, every, every girl sees this guy, they're like, damn, he's handsome. <laughs> like Sons of Anarchy I mean, kind of thing? I, yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff, exactly. And so... Prettier. I mean, Naomi will tell you. you know, she's no, like, like pretty. Like, like real, you know, like, oh my God. No, they showed us at uh, Fantasia, they showed us the footage, they were like, by the way, uh, that remember that day that we pushed all your call times by an hour? Well, this is why. And that's when they showed us. It was just like, what? Yeah. Anyway, apparently So wait, wait, you guys didn't guy, know like, you guys didn't know until the rap? No, we they no, we, we had we, no we idea. Even, we didn't even tell them. So what what No, what until the premiere. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people didn't know the premiere. Yeah. Well, cuz so what happened was that we okay, this guy, he is he's new to the this is a a truck ring, a production stealing truck ring. And his plan was to drive this truck down to Tijuana, and then it was going to go from there. And these guys had never been caught before. And so this guy is new to the ring, decides to turn state's evidence, allegedly. I have never seen a dime from it. He's supposed to pay us restitution, the whole thing. I don't even know what's happened with the court case. I should probably inquire one day, but like, I, just haven't, I, I just don't see a lot of money coming out of it. And you know, he may be dead for all I know. The, the, the point of it all is that we realized what had happened. The other producers, like, I was asleep sprung into action and actually got the truck, another truck to come in, pick up everything. They had to tow that other truck back to their lot and figure out what damage had been done to it. And we had to pay like, you know, fucking deductible or whatever bullshit. Um, but uh, we basically just pushed everything an hour. It didn't tell anybody, anybody why, because we need to be focused on this goddamn movie. We didn't need to be like, ah, this happened and that. No, we have 15 days to shoot this fucking movie. So we did that. And then I think we started telling some of the people at like the rap party and told them maybe one or two. And then we, but mostly we didn't tell anybody. And so then we started telling the story at the Q and a, everyone was like, what happened? And like our, our director didn't even know about it until the rap party. Cause we're like, he has like 500 things to think about right now. I don't want him knowing shit about this. I just, just don't, you know? So we didn't actually tell him to the rap party, but anyway, uh, yeah, long and short of it. Most of them didn't find out until later. And it was good that we held it back, and, and we were very lucky that, you know, it didn't delay us further on a 15-day shoot. Can you imagine? Like, every hour is precious. It's completely precious. So, that's the story. Well, and even hearing about it isn't as powerful as the actual image. Like, watching this gorgeous guy, like, come out of, you know be like handcuffed yeah <laughs> this, this sounds like this sounds like you could make another movie off of this you want restitution just make a movie out exactly. of the story because you have like a movie star caliber off. guy yeah he, he had is. him work it off there you go he, i would rather i would rather sex i mean scene janice just lost her husband she needs to rebound there you go I feel and, like and you look you could have another slap one scene and slaps him one that's, a good, that's, two that's, bathroom. that's a good idea that's a good idea <laughs> That's a good one, idea. Yeah, two we br. Could, yeah, we could all slap him. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of had this fantasy where he's my monkey butler, and like I just like ah, monkey butler. This is your rest. This is a restitution. You're gonna work it up. <laughs> You're a slave. Yeah, like a like a little like a taser necklace. You just push the button every time he misbehaves. Okay. And then you have to also date Janice or, or date Naomi in real life. That's that's <laughs> the other part of it. Like uh, you can work for me for eight hours, and then you go service Malay. And, you to go service <laughs> and that's your real punishment. <laughs> He'll be like, no, I'll take hard time, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all, I'm sure. But, you know, joking joking about a sequel, I was thinking about the ending, and there's actually two <laughs> things about the ending of the, of the film I wanted to talk about, and that's one of them is I know that you guys have been getting a lot of comparisons, positively and otherwise, to the invitation at the ending. And, and I actually wanted to get your guys' opinion on how you guys relate to the imitation, just the 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 similarities in terms of like whether it's just, it's just visual with the red lights all coming on or it being L.A. Well, the, well, there's something very specific though I can tell you. Like I went to high school with Matt Manfredi, who along with his writing partner Philip Hay, uh, he's his writing partner, and Philip Hay is actually married to Karen Kusama, who directed the Invitation. So I went to high school with Matt Manfredi, and you know I realized there was a little bit of a similarity to it. So we went over to a beer belly in a in a in a Koreatown to have some fried Twinkies and some delicious beer. And I sat and talked to him about it, and I showed him the script, and he read it. And, da, 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 and he came back and was like, "There's nothing to do with our film. There's there's, there's nothing to do with our film. It could it could be a nice double feature, but there's nothing to do with our film." And then it so happens that the next film I'm doing, I'm actually producing with one of the producers of The Invitation, Lindsay Lanzanetta. She also read it, and she's like, ah, it's nothing to do with ours. Uh, so I got it in the horse's mouth that they don't think it has anything to do with it. There is a similarity. I won't be wrong. Like, it, it seems like it could be in a, the same universe to some extent or whatever, but I think it's different enough, and they felt it was different enough that they gave us our blessings. So their blessings. So I felt like we were absolved of that in some sort of way. Yeah, you got, you got the official pass. Yeah, yeah, I feel like yeah. that's the case. So anytime someone brings it up, I'm like, ah, nah, fuck you. <laughs> No, no, I've got the word. I'm good. Well, and actually, and I didn't actually, I, I saw the visual similarities and definitely, you know, you could, the, the reveal of this being larger than in one enclosed space, I think there's a similarity there. But the one thing about that ending that struck me as being particularly different is instead of it, the, the shock just being the close and it's kind of the, the big shock moment and then we're done, it was you get the shock and then there's more afterwards and it's about, her character is about, about Sarah's character uh, realizing, okay, no, I'm going to fight back. You get the shot of the clenching fist, and then she takes off running into the street, which not only, I think, opens it up for a potential sequel, if that's something, I don't know if that's something you're thinking, you guys are thinking about at all, um, but also I felt like that, that takes it to be more about her and less about the situation, which is a different meaning to the ending. I'm not sure if that's what you guys uh, had intended or not. Well, you know, it was it's such a short shoot, right? And I remember that particular night when we were shooting. Um, like, there's like always questions, like, why doesn't she? Why? Why doesn't she run much longer? Why doesn't she do it? And I'm like, yeah, we wanted to do that, but the way everything's set up for the last shot, because that the, the outside of the apartment originally, when we shot at the, at the place, we shot all our exteriors, right? It's a real working apartment, by the way. When you walk out of that apartment it's all residential neighborhood in a church or something. And so it didn't fit it at all. So when we did the reshoots, we wanted to, we had shot an ending oh, with that, for that 15 days. Um, and then we, um, we had, sorry, there's something else talking in the background. That's me. I'm moving into another room that's going to be less quiet. Okay, sorry, sorry. I, I just didn't want to talk if it was going to be a talk over. Um, so I was trying to say that uh, that apartment didn't fit the bill. When we did the reshoots, we found an apartment that had like all those rows of apartments down the, the down the way and stuff like that. But the only problem was we could only shoot. So, we only had so much time to shoot running, right? Because you're you're running with the camera, right? And it's like ah, if this you know camera falls or breaks, we're fucked, you know. So you, you're you're really kind of tense on time tense for the amount of time you want to expose your camera to running or whatever. Well, and also you got the red lights shining. Were those digital or were that, were you actually shining lights no, at night? Well, no, no, no. Uh, like there's only three that are added in. And so we didn't technically uh, have like permission to do some right. of this stuff. Like, you know, right. we're like putting that like light a little closer to them. Maybe we should, I don't know. Allegedly, allegedly. I mean, I don't know. It's, it could be digital too. It could be digital. Um, uh, that uh, we had to do all that stuff at once. And so it all like came into this whole thing where we didn't have enough time to do things we we're doing. I actually made them, uh, one thing I was happy as a producer, they were only going to do like one shot of her like gripping her hands. And I made them do two more of them 
And they end up using the stuff that I had made them do extra of. Cause I was like, this is the moment. Like if anything's going on here, this is the moment that defines her. She's going to fight. She's ready. She's stealing herself. She's stealing and getting ready. And she's going to run off into the night, into the madness. We don't know if she's going to make it. We don't know what's going to happen, but she has made a resolve that she's, you know, she's resolute that she's going to fight this thing. Right. And so it was so important to sort of get that shot. And I was happy that we took like, you know, one or two times to get it. And, and, it, and it made a difference, I think, to some extent. But, um, but, but if your idea for a sequel, like, listen, there's a hundred different ways we can go. And we can't talk about any of them, sadly, because uh, we were trying to like, you know, J.J. Abrams is shit out of this. You know, what's in the box? I'm not going to tell you what's in the box. You might pay to see what's in that box. Uh, you know, it could be anything. Like uh, Naomi said, one ba- one bedroom, uh, two bath. And we always make the joke that, like, in a relationship, it keeps it fresh, keeps it magical if you have two bathrooms, right? Uh, it could be, uh, you know, one BR, the Chronicles of Janice. You know, she could have been the puppet master all along. We don't know is the, is the, is the you know, the whole thing. Also, do we really know that uh, Lester's dead? The the I mean, rise of Lester one two I mean, he, are the rise he, of Lester he, he could have exactly. just he could have just shot somebody else you don't see anything or yeah. or he's the puppet master too we don't know it can go a hundred different ways I mean we can do a prequel we could do whatever I will say this though there has been a, a ton of interest on it uh, about it on social media uh, I will say we are talking to Netflix I will say we are also talking to studios and that's all I will say on the matter. Well, speaking of Netflix, why do you think that, because you guys were trending number one there for a while on Netflix. And yeah, now, we, like, if I go to the horror section, for some reason, it doesn't even pop up. You know what and it is? For a while there, it, it, was, it was everywhere. And now well, I had I, to search for it last time I went. Do you think that Netflix, the algorithm is, has turned on it somehow? Or what, what do you think is happening there? Here's what happens. Once you've already seen the film, it's done. This is before I even saw it. Well, it depends who you are. It depends what you watch. Right, and Netflix, you know, hasn't had as strong horror selections. Let's say so. You may find your horror other places. Let's say, and it depends on your age. And so, you know, if you're a white male who's like, you know, 32 or whatever, and you don't seem to watch a lot of horror on their platform, but you watch other things, they're going to present those things to you first. That's that's sort of how it works. So, um, so Netflix, you feel like it's still giving you guys enough support. You feel so feel like they're putting you out there. Here's how, I know, here's how I know it is. Because what you should do is you set yourself another profile up that hasn't watched the film. And that's what I study every day. I get up in the morning at 4.30 in the morning. I, for some reason, I've been getting up at 4.30, 5 o'clock. They change it over at 4.30 in the morning is the idea, right? So I know the new... And you can only check the number ones like on your phone or your computer. Like it doesn't necessarily come through your television feed if you have it on your Apple TV or whatever. You never see like a top 10 hardly ever there at all. I don't think you see it at all. In fact, I've, I've tried to like reinstall the app and do different things. It doesn't, doesn't make a difference for me. Um, but I do see it on my phone every day. And that's actually where I found out we were number one. I was on the toilet. It was about 4.36 in the morning. And uh, I was like, yes, yes. So my wife was like, what's going on? Is another earthquake? And I'm like, no, my love, we're number one. <laughs> made it. We've made it. Your husband was on the toilet. All the, all the way like, from fires and, and hot truck thieves to number one well, on you know what, But you know what, in, in, a, in a very sensitive way, like we tried, we tried really hard with this because it's our first movie. You know, allegedly we have, you know, mortgaged our house to get the money for this movie, a paid off house, let's say. And, uh, you know, we, it, it's a team effort. Like, you know, after we released on, so we didn't get a premiere, right? Because of COVID, we were supposed to have a theatrical release, like 15 to 20 like cities and theaters or whatever. And we didn't get to go to the premiere. But the good luck was that we overperformed on VOD. And I'll be honest, Netflix passed on us at the beginning. But then they saw those sweet, sweet VOD numbers or whatever. And they were like, all right, we'll take you on for no money. And we're like, fuck you. <laughs> but we'll take it because we want to be on Netflix, you know? And no, maybe it's great exposure, yeah. Well, maybe they learned a lesson in terms of a sequel, you know, who knows? Let's say, and hopefully they have. And, and, and we talked to them and they're lovely people, by the way. Like they actually are like big fans of the movie and they're just like, just over the moon about, like they, they've said this to us, like not only is it like done really well with this like sort of horror audience, 
but it's done, it's spread out into different places, like thriller, independent, da, 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 da. like it, it really has sort of like gone cross genres, which is just crazy for them because they don't have a lot of that stuff generally. Uh, so they're very like kind of really impressed with what's happened, let's say, and hopefully we'll work, work on them with other projects, not even just one VR, but other stuff too. Um, but I was trying to say though that it, it did well on VOD, I was trying to make a point. Um, and then what happened is that Naomi Grossman and Clayton Hoff and all our actors, but really like Naomi and Clayton and, and definitely like Taylor Nichols and uh, they they've all come on board with this other strategy we had which was like basically when we came out on um VOD and then we knew we had a Netflix deal but we couldn't tell anybody about the Netflix deal lest lest we take away money from people paying full price to see it on VOD um they came on and started doing podcasts with us and interviews and we we also from our end pushed for people that didn't yeah, we weren't up to certified fresh when we first came out. So I made it a missive of mine that I knew we were cross-genre film and I wanted other people to see that Rotten Tomatoes score because it's literally listed there on iTunes, for example, right next to your goddamn movie. And if people are like, you know, like inquisitive people, they'll want to know, wow, that's an 80% Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. And it's certified fresh. Fuck yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll take a chance, right? We did all these things, right? We did the podcast. We did the interviews. We actually went out to journalists ourselves and we're like, mm. hey, listen, I don't know if you got a chance oh. to see this, but fucking I'll send you the movie myself. And so we did it. And because we did that, um, we were able to generate enough sort of awareness in uh, awareness for the film even past the um, initial release. And then we had a UK release, like it was a month after. And we had a Blu-ray release. And so all these little things we did all along the way to then finally get to Netflix. And the first day we come on, like the Sunday, the 23rd. And then for the next week, we're in the top five and even number one. Like we, we keep on going up the list until we get to number one. And, you know, then, you know, it was a thing where, you know, they, they, they take you off of prime placement of people who've already seen you and stuff, or like even click the trailer sometimes. And so that goes down a bit and then you come back on again. And now like we're, if you look at it, we're like in six different categories today. Cause I look at it every day. <laughs> and so, so, so uh, the whole point of it is that it became a whole perfect storm of enough awareness in the sort of Google sphere right. and enough awareness with the horror fans. Cause we did every single horror website and we were in Fangoria which made me very proud because that was very close to my heart growing yeah, up. Yeah, Bloody, Dis- Bloody Disgusting gave you guys a great review. Oh, I mean, we've, had, we've, had, we've, had, we've had three articles with them. They're you amazing. guys have great SEO right now. I, I look you guys up and there's a lot of good things that they're saying about you. So, Well, I mean, you know, we, uh-huh. only, we, only, we only repost the good stuff. <laughs> 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 we had 10 fuckers out of 70. They gave us bad reviews and fuck those guys or whatever. We're gonna do. Yeah, no, and <laughs> I actually, and I was, I was, one, I, I came into this and look, you and I go back a little ways, but I came into this trying to be as even handed as possible saying, okay, let's see what this is. I, I, I'm hoping for a good movie. Fingers crossed. You know, if it's, <laughs> if it's another small budget movie, that's, that's okay. Then great. But I was actually blown away. I actually thought it was a, a fantastic movie. It was really excellent for a lot of the reasons I've already said. I'm actually curious what, when you guys have probably all seen the movie a bunch of times. Uh, I'm assuming, but what what are your some of your guys' favorite scenes from the movie? Like, what stands out for you guys as being some of the exemplary parts of it? Like, people things people should concentrate on. Uh, I, well, I'll I, say, I, oh, oh, go go ahead, Naomi. Well, I was gonna say Clayton's performance, that scene where he uh, um, is um, you know with his new bride uh, in the bedroom. That that's probably my favorite scene. I, I mean, I'm not in it, but. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I thought Clayton just totally knocked that out of the park. I mean, I was, a, as a participant, you know, of course I'm a sucker for, you know, a, a crying on cue. That's a no brainer as an actress. And also I'm not going to lie. I really enjoyed slapping that guy, but, um, sorry. <laughs> Were you guys really like, slapping him? Did you really slap or was it like a, a working slap? No, no. I, I'm pretty sure I smacked the shit out of him. <laughs> I think. How many takes did that guy have to do? Method. I mean, we all did like one, you know. Well, I know. I know. By the time I think the first, I I think the first couple were real, and then, and then, by the time it got to uh, my producing partner Shane, his uh, he's a he's a you know very powerful dude, and like you know his was like more of, and he used to be an actor, so he knows how to like do the you know project and fake kind of thing or whatever. So I know I'm pretty sure his was because I've, I've seen I've seen footage of it and the background stuff from different angles and this that. So his was the fake one, but I think that they did one or two that were sort of real to get him get him ready. <laughs> oh my god! No, 
I don't really remember. I don't really remember right now, but I feel like I would have just gone for it. That's that's Janice. <laughs> really Clayton, went out and decked this. You guy. go ahead. What are your favorite scenes? Uh, uh, I loved uh, I loved the scene uh, after uh, Nicole was taken in and is being acclimated and tortured in the room, and you see her and she has this determination in her eyes. She says, "I got to get out of here. I'm gonna get out of here." Like that to me was really powerful in the crux of the film. And then uh, the the Miss Stanhope scene where they euthanize Miss Stanhope. Yes. On set that day, you know, the, the it's a very powerful scene, but. On set that day, it was actually really lighthearted. It was a really light and comical day, sort of, to be on set. People were having trouble keeping a straight face and and not laughing. Miss, <laughs> hey, today's day we get we Ms. get to kiss. We get to kill Mrs. Stanhope. Yay! Su Su Susan Davis is 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 a character. She she's a lot of fun, and uh, she just just made us laugh. <laughs> and and the best line is. Uh, is uh, when Brian gets uh, the chair breaks and he's like, fucking Ikea. Fucking Ikea. That was, <laughs> was like the best. Was that in the script or was that an ad lib? No, we, we had to add it in because the chair broke so so quickly and so it was so a piece of shit breakaway thing. And so I was like, we need to put something in there because I swear to God, man, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Like we've done all this work and it looks so cheap. And like I was like, and is either David or myself or somebody came up with it where we're like, yeah okay yeah use the hat, the hat so it works so perfectly because of course that's what she would have so that's yeah that's awesome impossible to put together and falls apart at the touch of you know whatever um but my favorite scene i would tell you i and i so i travel all over the world with this film because we, we really plotted out our on a festival run in a way and i think that's another reason that actually there was the awareness for the movie was there was because we did all these different things and you have different journalism journalists and so forth after each festival and da, da, da. and um the um fest the watching in all these different countries uh you know the nails in the hand obviously you know is fucked up and everyone is like ah losing their mind and you'll get like you know that 80 year old asian woman that walks out of the movie just because of that like <laughs> or right. you know, the cat maybe that's a whole different story but the the ones you I love the best is uh, really the part with um, uh, her father and um, him slapping her and you know she's the next time I want to see you is at my funeral and everyone is usually like in any language like damn or like in Fran French or like, oh, you know <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> all react to that scene and that became sort of a favorite scene to sort of watch and see people's expressions so I love I love watching audiences like I used to test movies for 18 years I would like sit and you know test movies for the studios and so I'd always be, I always stand or sit in the back or in the aisle whenever I'm watching our film like with an audience and stuff because I just like to kind of look look at the audience, take peeks at them and see where they're reacting to things. But that's definitely a place. It's my favorite scene that they definitely reacted. And I definitely reacted to it too. It's one of my favorite scenes as well in this movie. But guys, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for this week. Luckily, we have another show coming up next week. The final blowout episode of Horror Palooza will be next week with 10, all 10 of the final movies reviewed for the Horror Movie Marathon as well as the end of this interview with Alok Mishra, Naomi Grossman, and Clayton Hoff from 1BR. Thank, thank you guys so much for coming out and hanging out with me on this show. I really, truly appreciate it. Everybody out there in podcast land, thank you for listening to the show. We will be back next week, as I said. If in the meantime you want to let me know what you think of the show, what you think of my movie selections, and my thoughts on them, you can hit me up on the Twitters at Sir Ian Dangerous and on Instagram also at Sir Ian Dangerous. Of course, musical contributors, thank you again. Tiki Creeps at TikiCreeps.com and 414Beg on Instagram and Spotify. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you very much for joining us here on 